Welcome to the People Data for Good podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I am extraordinarily excited to be with my longtime friend, colleague, and somebody that I super respect in the field of people analytics, Don Klinghoffer from Microsoft. Don, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And again, thank you for taking the time to share your story with me and what's happening in Microsoft and get your take on what's happening in the world, not only of people analytics, but in the world of, of work, particularly given that we're still in the midst of COVID. We've been yo-yoing back and forth. And I know you've done some great work on hybrid workforce as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion, and sense of belonging. So if you would introduce yourself and a little bit about what you're doing there at Microsoft. Yeah, so I'm uh, obviously my name's Dawn, and I have been at Microsoft for over 20 years. I've been uh, in the people analytics field for now almost, I think, uh, 18 years, which is pretty remarkable considering that 18 years ago we didn't call it people analytics. Uh, before that, I spent five years in finance at, at Microsoft. And my background is, is math. I was an actuary before I joined Microsoft. I thought it was the most boring job in the entire world. And, and I, was, I had always had a fascination with Microsoft. And so it was always kind of my goal to get to Microsoft, even though I wasn't quite sure the impact that I would have there or how I would uh, make my mark. But um, I, I, I was always the North Star for me was to get to Microsoft. And what was the inspiration to get to Microsoft? Did you grow up there in the Seattle area? I didn't. It was, it's very odd. I was always kind of obsessed with computers. Um, I remember being in high school and there being a room that had some computers and I always wanted to understand these computers and what, it, what they did and how they were built. And, um, and when I went to college, uh, that was during the time where uh, Mac was really taking off and everyone had these like rectangular kind of computers. Um, they, they had them in the library for us to print off our papers. But my father had said to me, you know, for graduation, I want to buy you a computer. Um, what kind of computer do you want? And I said, well, I want, I want a PC because I'd read about Microsoft, I'd read about Windows, and I'd read about this guy, Bill Gates, and, and how incredibly smart he was. And, and I was just very interested in that. So I, I asked for a PC. Um, I remember going to the library to find out where Microsoft was when I was kind of thinking, what am I going to do when I graduate? And I saw that it was in, in Redmond, Washington. And I thought to myself, well, I've never even been to Washington. I don't ever plan on going to Washington, so I guess I won't be working at Microsoft. And I decided to take the actuarial route instead because back then there were very few things that you could do with a math major. You could really be a professor or you could be an actuary. At least that's what that's what I learned. Um, I did have a couple friends that I studied math with that went to consulting, but that was not the norm. So um, not like today, where the field of analytics is so huge and people that have a math degree, wow, there, there, is, there is so much opportunity out there. Absolutely. There's so much opportunity. And what you are highlighting is something that is often said, but it's not really understood in that, oh, the job that you're going to have in the future hasn't been created yet. And you're a perfect example of that, yeah? 
Mm -hmm. Yes. I wish that I could say that I had the foresight, you know, that I, that I knew when I was in finance that there needed to be this type of field of people analytics. I really cannot take credit for that at all. Uh, it was just happenstance that I ended up in a uh, people analytics job. But what I will say is I saw the opportunity once I got into the data and that's where i was able to really form the the you know what we do at microsoft and and really uh, you know i do consider that way back then we were pioneers of this field um and we were creating attrition reports and churn reports and we didn't realize that it would catch on and that all companies would want to do this and how hard it was for companies to have the capability to create these types of reports yeah on an ongoing basis at speed and at scale it's yeah, yeah. there's obviously we'll, we'll get into the work in, in a little bit there's two questions that come to mind. I'm going to ask you about the transition from finance into people analytics in a minute, but where were you at the time when you discovered that Microsoft was in Redmond? You know, was that 3,000 miles away? And, and you know, where did you grow up and go to school? I, I grew up in Connecticut and I went to school in Pennsylvania. I went to Bucknell University, so we were pretty much in the center of the state. And, uh, and I, uh, what's funny is that uh, my daughter is now the third generation um, in my family on both sides to go to college in Pennsylvania. Okay, so my father uh, went to school in Pennsylvania. My husband's father went to school in Pennsylvania. My husband and I both went to Bucknell. Um, and now my daughter's in school in Pennsylvania. And none of us grew up in Pennsylvania. So there's this weird thing about Pennsylvania and my family. <laughs> and education, I, note to self. <laughs> it's, it's where you go to get educated, yes. Right, right. Um, so, so yeah, I was thousands of miles away. And, and how I ended up getting to Seattle was that, um, so my, my current husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he, he went to get his PhD. Uh, and he's a scientist, he's a cancer researcher, and he got his PhD in Colorado. So we moved to Colorado. We loved the mountains. We loved Colorado. But when you're a scientist, you have to do a postdoctoral fellow. And you can't do your postdoctoral fellow in the same place where you do your, your PhD. So he said one day, I need to figure out where I'm going to do my postdoc. I have two options right now. There's um, a position at Harvard and a position at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, which happened to be in Seattle. And I said, oh my gosh, if we go to Seattle, then maybe I could work at Microsoft. <laughs> and so we chose Seattle. Okay. I mean, like literally it was just one of these weird things that, that our stars were coming together. Now, what I would say is back then, um, I didn't know how to get a job at Microsoft. So as an actuary, I thought, well, maybe they would hire me as a benefits consultant. So I send my resume. And I mean, this, it's such a great story because you think about like the skills economy that we're dealing with right now. So I send my resume and I hear nothing. So I realized, okay, that's not going to happen. I'm going to take programming classes then. So I can get a job as a programmer because the majority of the people at Microsoft are programmers. So I, I got an actuarial job in Seattle at an at a insurance company, but I was still focused on getting to Microsoft. And uh, one of my colleagues at the insurance company, he was an accountant and he got an accounting job at Microsoft. He called me up and he said, 
you're smart. You, you're really good at numbers. You can totally be an accountant, but they can hire you as an accountant. I said, but I've never taken an accounting class. I don't, I don't know how I could do that. He said, we, they're just hiring so many people right now. Just try. Okay. So I sent my resume in, I got an interview and back then the way they interviewed people is they would ask some brain teasers, you know, that was part of the interview process. Well, the brain teaser that they happened to ask me was a math problem. Okay. They, they asked me what the sum of the integers were between zero and a hundred. And I, I kind of looked at the guy that was interviewing me and, and I'm like, wow, they're testing my ability to do math in my head. I knew what the formula was. I knew how to do math in my head. I gave him the answer. He was kind of blown away because he was looking for how I think, not the actual answer, but no one had ever given him the actual answer before. Um, so they hired me and I, I learned what a debit and a credit was. I understood financial statements from being an actuary. It's a true testament to the fact that Microsoft over 20 years ago was taking a leap of faith on the fact that, uh, that I had raw talent. Okay. And, um, and that's what I appreciated the most about it is that I didn't have an accounting degree. I learned and, and now, you know, I'm, I'm a, a VP at Microsoft. And, and so I, you know, started as a senior accountant and I worked my way up and, and I took advantage of all the different opportunities that came my way at Microsoft. I love that story so much. And it yells growth mindset to me that they're looking for somebody who has the willingness, capacity to learn, you know, someone who can think on their feet. And obviously you have those skills in, in, in droves. So if you would take that to your journey there at Microsoft. So now you're in finance and then there's this thing called what, or did it even have a name at the time that eventually emerged into what we now call people? Yeah, in we, didn't, we didn't have that. When I was in finance, part of my job, so I, I first, I was a revenue accountant, then I was a um, expense accountant. And then I, I changed roles and I was working on financial reporting. And when I was doing financial reporting, part of my job was headcount reporting. And at that time we were building a data warehouse, which was a little unusual for companies to have at that point, but we had a, we had a data warehouse and, and so we were dabbling in headcount reports at that point. And, and it was, we were in finance, which again, um, is, is unusual today because, you know, that happens in HR. So I, I went on maternity leave, um, with my first child. And when I came back, I mean, I really had an epiphany of, I can't be in the office more than I am at home. Like I need to spend more time with my child than I am working. And so I came back and asked my manager if I could work part-time. And my manager said, sure, whatever, you know, whatever to, to keep you. But what I quickly realized is that um, as, a, as a, a, a female returning into the work site, taking the same job that you had that was a full-time job and turning it into a part-time job, I was a manager, I, it doesn't work. Okay, you, you kind of have to make a clean break. If that's what you're going to do, you have to make a clean break and go to another job. And so I quickly realized that, yeah, I'm still doing a full-time job, but trying to cram it into three days a week. 
Okay. And so I got a phone call from a colleague of mine that we worked together in finance and he had moved to HR to be the head of compensation and benefits. And he was the one really with the foresight. He was like, hey, we have this data warehouse. This should be HR looking at this data. We need people with an analytics capability in HR to do this. Will you come and be part of this group that I want to that I want to create? And um, he had just hired a director to lead the team. Okay, and so we we kind of you know I was I was just an individual. I. I I forewent my, my manager position to take an IC role so that I could work part-time because that was the deal. I said, I'll come and do this if you let me work part-time. And he said, yes. Um, so we were kind of building the capability then. The thing is that, and I learned this uh, pretty early on in finance, you could just go and make decisions and, and using data, you could just get people rallied around it. People were very, they had the capability to understand data. In HR, uh-uh, no. I kind of stayed on this path of eventually we're going to need a, a scorecard, you know, of it, but we need to do it in the right way. We need to really focus on change management and capability building and what's in it for them. Okay. Mm -hmm. the, we're not measuring you. We're, this isn't a police, you know, uh, a, a way to monitor whether or not you're doing your job. This is helping you be more effective and impactful. And it took a while, but we were, we were able to get there. And, um, and it was around that time that I, I took over uh, leading the team and, and I, I worked part-time for quite a while, even leading the team. I, I was part-time, but I, I eventually transitioned back to, to full-time. Now, did you have a naming convention at that time? Because I remember well, that was about the time um, Ulrich and uh, um, Smallwood, I believe, came out with HR Scorecard, um, the book. And I, I know um, John Boudreau was doing some work uh, around, uh, I believe it was the LAMP um, model. And so the idea that there be some accountability around how HR leaders' decisions were affecting or not affecting, you know, the workforce, to your point, was new and, correct me if I'm wrong, a little bit scary or a lot bit scary, you know, because yeah. it was really, oh, you know, trust me on this. This is the way, you know, I've done it elsewhere, you know, but that started to maybe not carry the same weight as the data that was truly being generated. Can you speak to that, you know, a little bit about how you manage the expectations of your internal customers, namely executives on the value it could bring as opposed to the seemingly punitive uh, uh, repercussions that could result of something not delivering on a certain promise? Yeah. And, you know, at this point, it was really, this was just an HR scorecard for HR, okay, for the HR leaders, okay, mm -hmm. that it wasn't really going beyond that. And, and the way um, that we had to really get them to have ownership in this was to attach it to the strategies that they were focused on. Okay. And so that was, that was the way to get them invested in it. Hey, you're focused on this strategy. This these data are going to actually help you execute on your strategy and will tell you whether or not you need to make adjustments. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to give you that foresight so that you can be successful in the end. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you know, you can't just 
think of measures that you think are interesting. You have to attach the measures to something tangible that you're actually looking for an outcome to drive. Now, you and I get this, you know, with 20 years of, you know, processing at the time, did leadership go, okay, great. Or was it something that you needed to evolve with them over time? needed to evolve it over time. And so you start small. We started with a few important measures and then it was like, oh, this is great. I want more, I want more. And then it got to the point where the HR scorecard was just so big, okay, that we had to go through a whole process to call it down to the most important measures. Okay, so, so yeah, it took some time, but then I feel like once it got rolling, it really got rolling, okay? And, and I feel like that's the way we still are today, that everyone wants so much, and it's how do you prioritize the most impactful, most important measures to focus on, okay? Yeah. You know, as, as you're sharing this, I, yeah, I'm getting excited about a bunch of things, as I usually do when I talk with you. It's the case where you're producing or publishing measures and metrics in this scorecard, which I'm sure is colorful and dynamic. And But you still have to put a narrative around it. You still have to create context and then potentially make recommendations. So what I'm calling out here and I want to ask you about is there's this recurring reporting activity, dashboarding activity, but there's also uh, being responsive and being very focused to your point on the priorities of your internal customers. How did you manage that? You know, did you start drawing distinctions as you got into the work between, okay, this is reporting, this is a, a tech role that somebody has to take care of, and this is a more of a research role where somebody has to go and study something and put together a deliverable? Did you start making those distinctions at some point? And if so, how? Yeah, so I think the scorecard was definitely a good North Star for us and grounding for us on what to focus on and have our, you know, at this point, we didn't have an advanced analytics and research team. Okay. I mean, that, that came years later, um, you, you know, that we were all kind of doing all jobs. Okay. There, you know, it was a small team and we were scrappy. And, and so what we would do is we'd, we'd glom on to something. I mean, I remember early on, there was something that came out of the scorecard that was around span of control and org depth, okay? And all of a sudden, our CEO kind of had this, this bee in his bonnet. This was, the, you know, our, our former C CEO about the fact that, oh my gosh, if we have too many org layers in our company, that means senior people are too far away from me and I need them to be close so that they can make decisions quickly. Okay. And then it started, then it turned into this whole kind of advanced analytics exercise for us to figure out, okay, by looking at the different roles that people had, okay, and what level they were at Microsoft and what we expected from them and the decision-making prowess that we, that we expected and how far away are these from the senior leaders. And it, it, you know, it, it really kind of helped him shape how he wanted the company to be organized. So again, that all came from the scorecard, or, uh, you know, originally. And I would say the way we do things now 
is so much better than the way we did things back then. Back then it was a lot of happenstance, okay? Um, and, and the way we do things now is a lot more, there's stuff at scale, and then there's there's kind of the, you know, the drill downs or what we call the data wallows, okay? And, and where we really do assign um, deep projects, okay, for people to spend time digging deep, and that's why I call it data wallow, digging deep, and then kind of presenting that to to the leadership team. And we do that monthly. We, ha we have data wallows monthly with our uh, HR leadership team. And oftentimes those are the slides that end up going to um, the SLT and the board of directors. Okay, and, and so it, it's, it, it is a good exercise that we do. We have, instead of a scorecard today, we have what we call an exec deck. Okay, and that exec deck is essentially everything that we would have probably had in the scorecard at some point, but it's a, but it's, it's a little bit more tangible and actionable than just a number in a scorecard. Okay. Mm -hmm. It gives you a little bit more flavor because a lot of times you do have to bring in the qualitative data with the quantitative data. And so that exec deck tells more of a story than just looking at one page of a scorecard. I mean, I, I adore that <laughs> for so many reasons. And uh, I want to ask you, what's the frequency in which that deck is uh, put out first? So monthly, it wasn't, it, and this is, you know, again, in the last couple of years, we really transitioned to monthly. It was not, it was not, uh, maybe, I can't remember, but within the last few years, we transitioned it to monthly. And the reason why we did is because we were getting asked four slides in this deck and it, it turned into a fire drill to try to get these slides created and we're like you know what we're just going to do it monthly we're just going to have them um a lot of those slides go into the board of directors meetings which are quarterly and so so yeah we we create that deck monthly that's exactly where i was going so thank you for taking it there because what i'm hearing you say uh just to call out a few things number one it's their deliverable. They own it, correct me if I'm wrong. You are the facilitator of the creation of that deliverable. Is that a fair statement? Well, yes and no. It is their data, okay? And one of the things that we say is, is we want our customers to own their data, okay? So yes, the leadership team feels like this is this is all of our data, okay? Um, but they they really see my role as the as the person that brings things to them before they become a massive problem okay mm -hmm. um and and that you know again as much as i focus on scale and as much as we focus on capability and providing data at your fingertips for our hr leaders and there's still this aspect of well but the people analytics team are really going to tell us what if something's burning we're gonna we're gonna hear it from them you know and that, that leads into the second thing that i wanted to call out and i'm going to use my own language and if you want to qualify it uh, by all means is that you are creating the space in which to have the discussion around data and how it's affecting their goals the hr strategy yep. oftentimes i see 
a HR leader or somebody saying, hey, data scientists over there, report writer over there, put a narrative around this. And, it, and there's just a huge gap and the nuances are lost, the context is lost, that's the appropriate action is lost. So I often coach leaders and analysts alike, is like, you have to create the space to have the discussion. Because if you don't have that, you don't know where to set priorities, you don't know how the deliverable is gonna take hold. And all these other needs downstream. Would you like to echo that or qualify? Oh, anything? yeah. No, I mean, I'm going to 1000% agree with you and, and even build on that to say it is a true partnership. Okay. And that's one of the things that I am most proud of in the evolution of people analytics at Microsoft is our partnership with our uh, centers of excellence. Okay. I mean, we have great partnerships with our line teams as well. Don't get me wrong, but our centers of excellence, they are the program owners for pretty much everything that happens in HR. Okay. So we are, we are tied at the hip with these folks. I mean, we are tied at the hip with our, um, our global diversity and inclusion team and our talent management team and learning and development. And, you know, we work every step of the way with them on our programs. And we, and, and it's not that we are running to catch up after them. We are, we're, they bring us in from the beginning and we talk about the priorities from the beginning and we talk about the measurement strategy from the beginning. And, and so that's where I think we've really evolved is that they do have such ownership over the data and we are such strong partners with these, with these teams. Well, and I'm going to call out something uh, again that I believe you are a perfect model of. And when I say perfect, I put it in quotes because we all, <laughs> I don't. No, it's perfect. No, it's perfect. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. It's exactly where I was going. That said, I often coach young people uh, on, hey, if you're going to get hired and you're going to be effective, I, I believe that you're going to have to communicate or come across in, in four ways. Number one, be likable. You know, they're going to have to want to engage you. And, and that's rooted in being kind and curious and all these things. Number two, they're going to trust you, you know, and that's true is going to be in your level of curiosity and, and the way you show up and obviously your professional qualifications. Lastly, they're going to have confidence that you understand their problem. So again, growth mindset, curiosity, and then finally, they're going to have the trust and faith that you have the skills and abilities to help them solve that problem. And so what I hear you saying is that you're showing up, you're facilitating the discussion, people feel safe, they trust you, they like you, and you know, the things that I, I just listed. What has to happen, and I don't see many organizations um, uh, doing it at scale, is that there has to then be an appropriate response to creating the deliverables, creating the processes that are going to affect change. And that takes creativity. And that takes ample resources. And before I let you respond, I'm going to tell a quick story. Because I know firsthand at your cooking prowess. And we were together there at, uh, was it Blue Ridge? Was it Blue Hill? Remember? Blue Hill Farms. Yeah. Blue Hill Farms. Yeah. And we'd had this cooking contest among and you and I were on the same team and I remember it was a beautiful moment 
Um, you were to my right, kind of at the head of the chopping block. We had a bunch of ingredients out there. I think there's five of us, give or take. And uh, I saw you just assessing the situation. <laughs> and I looked at you and you looked at me and you just, all right, I'm taking over. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you looked at me and said, he's going to be no help. So I'm going to go here. And you were like, all right, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. We're going to do this. And you, I just saw it all thick. And the thing about it, the way you did it, it was immensely appropriate. I mean, you were likable. You built trust. We had a problem to solve. And everyone on our team had the faith that, uh, you know, you had the ability to organize. And, and so you had the creativity and you had these other attributes. So I want to compliment you. Uh, we, for the record, for listeners, we won. In other words, Dawn won. <laughs> no, we won. We won. <laughs> we, we, we were uh, at Dawn's sitting on that. Um, I highlight that story with this question is that that skill that you highlighted in that example, that skill is one I believe people analytics leaders need to have is that we need to organize, we need to prioritize, we need to command resources, we need to inspire. So can you, you know, speak to that, particularly in terms of commanding resources to get things done that are appropriate to solve the problems? Yeah, and that, I mean, First of all, I cannot be successful in my role without my incredible team. I mean, I cannot be everywhere at all times, but my team, talk about creativity, okay? That, that is really something core to what we do. You have to think differently and, and we're not, we don't have a roadmap for everything that we're doing. We're kind of making all of this stuff up as we go along. Of course, we can learn from our mistakes and we can do something well and say, I want to replicate that, but do that in a different, in a different type of setting or client uh, kind of outcome that we're looking for. But yeah, it is that creativity and, um, and that trust with the client, okay, that is so important. I look at my leaders in the COE space and they are, they are doing that with their clients day in and day out. And I love that. And the, it's like being a proud parent almost, you know, the best thing that you can ever hear is when one of the, one of my peer COE leaders, okay, will come to me and say how amazing their partner is. Okay, and how much they enabled them to have the impact with the program that they did, and and it's the the creativity, um, it 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 extends not just in terms of what we can do with the the data, but what we can do with the program. Okay, um, so that's where uh, it it is. It's absolutely something that I look for and. And it's not easy to hire folks. I mean, we have lots of talent out there. I mean, that is not the problem. When we have open positions, we get lots and lots of resumes, but being able to really figure out uh, the, the right, uh, the, the person that's going to come in and build that trust and have that creative prowess and, um, and the capability and to not just have the trust with our clients, but the trust of the people on the team, because, you know, the other thing that I've done is I've cried, I've, I've tried to create this environment within the people analytics function is we have to rely on each other within 
we, my team is called HRBI, HR Business Insights, which in within HRBI, we have to rely on each other. So we either succeed together or we fail together. And, and you know, to, to say a little bit more about that, I have two teams that are very audience driven. They, they are, are very much focused on their clients, COE analytics and the line analytics. And then I have two shared resources function, our advanced analytics and research function and our analytics at scale. And analytics at scale has our tier one support and our folks that work with our IT organization on building our tools and technologies, our Power BI developers, our cross-business analytics, our privacy. So analytics at scale is a, is a big team. Um, and, our, and our program and, and project managers are on that team as well. We all have to work seamlessly together, okay? And, and if you ask me what my biggest challenge and opportunity is, it's that. It's making sure that we are all working well together. It's super easy to focus on your client. It's harder to say, how am I going to involve the right people to get the best outcome? Okay. And that, that is what we have to do. And, you know, some would argue, maybe I should organize ourselves better so that it's easier. Okay. But I struggle with that. I'm kind of like, well, I don't have enough data scientists to give everyone their own, okay? And I don't think I ever will, and nor should we, okay? And and so that's why, you know, doing things at scale is super important, but it's how do you organize so that you can do things at scale and that you can, you can provide this kind of um, one Microsoft approach, that's what I would say. Well, you, you could do analytics on your analytics team. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you are. Um, yeah. That being said, and it's something that you know, I'd like to ask you about the here and now, and you know how that creativity um, and alignment is required with hybrid workforce strategies and and diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, the, the key topics of the day, including well-being and, and belonging you know, with remote workforce. But before we do that, I want to go back to this um, when you were just building um, the team and grading the, um, the appetite for it internally and the idea that you needed space to maneuver. You've said a couple of times that, uh, you know, where we make mistakes. Um, so there has to be commitment from executives say, okay, we're going to do this. You know, this is important. We're going to do this. We don't expect everything to come out perfect. And correct me if I'm wrong, the deliverables that we're creating aren't about certainty. It's not A plus B equals C. It's that we're helping elevate confidence with our deliverables. We're not giving answers per se um, right. in, in, in many cases. So, you know, there has to be arguably a level of education around how to consume these insights and in turn take appropriate action. So did that take a lot of heavy lifting from your side initially to build kind of the air cover, if you will, or the space to maneuver? Or did that happen just because you created deliverables, you built relationships, and the trust just started to build over time? Or was it a combination of pushing forward and building this trust? I, I think it was a combination. I mean, we had to kind of do two things, everything at the same time. Okay. And so it was sometimes it was like, okay, look over there on the deliverables that we're working on 
and don't pay attention to some of this work that we're doing that you're really not going to see the fruits of the labor for, for quite a while. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that was where some of the, you know, the, the, the creativity comes from a little bit. It's like thinking about the future. Okay. It might not be needed right now, but in two years, this is going to be a very hot topic. And, and when leadership comes to me and says, we need this now, it's not something that we are going to be able to do quickly. And so we need to start this now without them really knowing we're starting this now, because of course, as soon as you tell someone that you're doing things, they're like, okay, where is it? Is it done yet? Is it done yet? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we, I, I did have to do a few of those, I would say dances, okay, um, to buy myself some time knowing that things are not easy. Okay. And we are going to make some mistakes, but I want to make sure that at the end that we, 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 we are, we are satisfied with what we're delivering and not just like, God, we're just throwing this against the refrigerator to see if it sticks. Okay. Right. Right. And, you know, if I'm a listener and I'm as well, Microsoft's Microsoft, they have money to burn, they can experiment, they can, so if it doesn't work out, it's not going to affect them arguably financially. Uh, yeah, I know that you have budgets and, you know, so, you know, that is the qualifier. Um, but what would you say to those who's, hey, you know, we don't have the budget or we're not going to prioritize the build aspect that's going to deliver value 12, 18, 24 months down the road. Um, We're just going to still, you know, fly, uh, you know, not prioritize it. And we're going to try and be responsive and we're going to under deliver uh, because we just don't have the infrastructure built or it's not even being built. So, you know, what would be your coaching? I imagine you say, you know, go find the money, <laughs> you know, because this is a non-negotiable. I mean, what, what would you say to them? I mean, yeah, if it, it, first of all, you try to to write the best business case that you possibly can, okay, to get the money. But but if you can't, then the, the, the other alternative is technology has come so far, okay? I mean, 10, 15 years ago, it, the, there were very, very few uh, technology platforms out there that would really accelerate what we were doing, okay? That is so not the case these days. And so these days, you can be a company that decides, okay, God, we need to do, we need to have a platform where every employee, every uh, HR manager needs to be able to see an attrition report. You can like buy something uh, now, buy some technology that will help you build that attrition report pretty instantly, as long as you have an HCM system that's set up, you know? Um, In fact, I think all the off the shelf workday success factors, and they all have all of this stuff kind of built in now for you. We didn't have that when we were starting up. So I do think that technology is an enabler. And when I talk about, when I talk about having the foresight and and kind of thinking about things, I'm, I'm mostly now talking about advanced analytics topics. Okay. Um, even our predictive attrition model that we've had for years and years now, but we, we hired a a data scientist. This was a a long time ago to help us work on this. And we didn't want to tell people that we were, we, we made the case that we needed a data scientist and we made the business case about what we could do with a data scientist, but we kind of on the side, 
we're like, work on this predictive attrition model. We're going to get it so that we think it's good. And then we're going to start showing it to people. Okay. As opposed to telling everyone we're going to, you know, build this and we're going to deliver it. People would have said, yeah, next week. Can we have it next week? Can we have it the week after? Can we, you know, and, and we didn't want to be in that position where we were letting people down. We wanted to be in the position where we were like, hey, look at this. We know we built it and, and we know it's not perfect and we want your feedback and we're going to continue to evolve it. Okay. And that's what we've done. And, and we continue to evolve it even today. Yeah. As you're sharing that, it makes me uh, recall that you know, advanced analytics has been ill-defined, uh, or and so it's intimidating and say, oh, it's it's been deemed a nice to have. However, you know, the, to your point around the business case, uh, if you get out and you look at it, I mean, the business case is pretty obvious, um, but it does take uh, a leap of faith. Someone has to look at the business case, say, this makes sense and, and you know, let's do it. And obviously you've had a group in, in your leadership that has said, okay, this is uh, worth doing. Um, the technologies that you highlighted are evolved and now we're able to create or capture uh, what I would call behavioral data, you know, how people are actually using their time on what technologies at what frequency and, and so forth. And that's been part of what, you know, we as analysts are able to, to look at. So I want to ask, you know, in combination there, you have researchers have a, more data sets, we have technologies that are cr creating data that's not only more attuned to what people are actually doing, it's happening at a greater frequency. So now this formerly, um, what, we have continuous variables now. You know, the, the data just can be analyzed and we can identify patterns much more readily than we could historically. So my question coming out of all, all this is, is this, as we formulate strategies, particularly around hybrid work, you know, I just want to get your take on you know, how organizations can go about it. And before I let you answer, one of the things that you uh, shared, I don't know, a year or two ago, actually I pre-COVID, um, you talked about, or it might've been postcard, it's all time warp. <laughs> um, around sending emails and requests on Friday afternoons mm -hmm. and how that disrupted people's lives that evening and over the weekend. And that actually changed my behavior. So, you know, thank you for that. But that insight came out, correct me if I'm wrong, on some of the analytics that you had done. So I'm like, gosh, that's a perfect example of how it can be applied. And now, you know, to do it at scale when you're formulating return to workplace strategies and the like, yeah, the opportunity is, is fantastic to not only help the organization be more successful, but to help protect the well-being of those within the organization. So can you speak to that, please? Yeah, and so um, I would be remiss if I didn't say that as analysts, we always have a wish list of data elements, okay, that that we, it, it never, it, it, it never gets to zero, put it that way, okay, and actually with the proliferation of data in the last few years, the list usually just keeps getting longer and longer, and so for a long time, some of the, the data on our wish list was getting access to calendar and email metadata, okay? If we could only understand how people are working, it could shed some light on the behaviors because we have the engagement 
survey data. So we have what we consider to be the outcome variable, the outcome variable of engagement. And if we can match that up with how people are working, then we understand different behaviors that, that drive higher engagement. Okay. Um, and that's where this came from was that we looked at people um, that, and obviously we, we uh, de-identified this, we aggregated it, we did it, we started this just in the US because we needed to work to make sure that all the different countries were comfortable with how we were doing this. We were very clear with our employees about how we were gonna use this data and that we would come back to them with insights and that this would really help them be more effective, okay? We, um, because we, we saw what happened when employees did not have trust and, and uh, data was being used and they didn't really understand why, okay? And even at Microsoft, a technology company, you have to be very clear with your employees about how you're gonna use their data. So it was really exciting to see this relationship when people are answering about their perception of work-life balance and then you can match it up with some behaviors to understand the impacts of, um, email overload and emails from your manager. And, you, you know, when, when, e when managers are sending a bunch of emails on Friday nights and over the weekend, this perception that you actually have to do something with the emails, even though they're not asking you to do anything, you know? Um, and we continue, you know, again, this was pre-COVID. This was a couple years pre-COVID, okay, that we were doing this. And so I felt like we were really set up when COVID occurred to start looking at this even more. I mean, you know, this is where it was very interesting. COVID happens. The first thing that, that our leadership wants to do is understand productivity, okay? Is, is this impacting productivity? And so you go to um, we call it now Viva Insights, um, which was formerly Workplace Analytics. You go and you look at um, collaboration patterns, okay? So email and calendar um, patterns. And you realized, we realized, you know, when COVID hit, people were working more than ever. But it was like, whoa, wait a second. We're tracking everything now. Okay, you, we weren't tracking when someone walked down the hall to have a conversation with someone in the office that wasn't scheduled. We didn't have that. But now that everyone was at home, everything was being tracked. So it's no wonder that we are seeing increased collaboration patterns. Um, but, it, you know, it, it didn't really slow down. It kept kind of increasing, you know, and, and then we could see the impact that that was having on employees' perception of work-life balance. You know, the, the work-life balance was going in the opposite direction, okay? So um, the collaboration pattern's going up, the work-life balance is going down, but we also asked people about their perception of productivity. And in the beginning, you know, I, I have to say, we never got to a, a, what I would consider to be even like a concerning level of productivity. I mean, largely people felt like they were productive during this time. You know, I mean, we're, we work, we're very, very fortunate. We work in a technology industry where people have computers, they can work from home. Okay. Yes, there are some workers that are essential workers that needed to be in the office during COVID, like our data center workers and, um, you know, health and safety was, top priority for them. 
Um, but, you know, largely people could work from home and they felt like they could be productive at home. Now, again, we have to understand what was going on during this time. Kids were home from school. They were doing remote learning that was putting pressure on parents. And, and really a lot of how we got through that was to promote flexibility. Okay. So I had folks on my team that had kids at home and they would say, I can't, I'm going to work from seven o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock. And then I'm going to need to go and help my, my children for three hours. And then my wife is going to go and help the children for three hours. You know, they were doing these balancing and, and so they'd work early and sometimes they'd work late. Okay. But they'd be gone for a chunk of the middle of the day. And, and we were okay with that. We were, we were good with that. Okay. And so you had to start looking for different types of patterns. Okay. That it's not necessarily a horrible thing. If people are working after hours, if that's what makes them feel productive and have the flexibility that they need to get their work done. And that is a great insight that in turns appreciates the diversity of working at uh, the diverse nature of an individual's needs, whether or not they have kids, elder care, or, or, or so forth. So the idea that some organizations are creating blanket policies that you now have to come into the office for X number of days per week. I mean, how does that feel for you? Because I imagine you use these insights to formulate your hybrid workforce strategy or your return to workplace strategy. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. And so the way, um, so absolutely they did. I mean, talk about the partnership. You know, we had folks on my team working very closely with the um, the folks that were owning the hybrid work guidelines. And um, what we announced a couple months ago was that you can work from home less than 50% of the time. You don't even have to ask your manager. Okay. That's standard is, mm -hmm. is being able to work at home less than 50% of the time. Once it comes to working from home more than 50% of the time, you do have to get approval from your manager, okay? But even then, we're not dictating what days it is that you cut. Like, again, that's for you to just figure out and talk with your manager on. But what I would say is that, and this is a lot of our, our insights have really glommed on to the importance of the manager. Okay, the importance of the connection that the employee and the manager are making. These conversations are critical. Okay, we saw through so much of our work, the criticality of the manager through the onboarding process during COVID. I mean, we, we actually found that uh, during COVID, people uh, felt like they had a better onboarding experience, okay, than we were seeing pre-COVID. Now, maybe it's because the bar was lower for these folks, okay, because they're like, oh my God, I'm going to be onboarding. But what we saw was that managers were really um, stepping up and they were the ones that were offering the most guidance to their new employees, whereas pre-COVID, it was a combination of the manager and the colleagues and the onboarding buddy. And while the onboarding buddy was still super important during COVID, the manager really was the, the, the linchpin there. Okay. And again, this is 
we were lucky on this. We had been focused on managers long before COVID. We released our, our um, you know, we, we were focused on the role of a manager before COVID. And we, um, we announced to the organization that we wanted managers to model coach and care. Those were the three manager expectations. So during COVID, what do you think, you know, kind of elevated the most? It was the care aspect of this okay managers really understanding individually what employees needed and that caring aspect and not forgetting about the fact that employees wanted to continue to grow their careers okay and 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 that's something that again we cannot stress enough is how important that connection is to make sure that employees continue to grow their careers yeah with that in mind, it, the, that connection between managers and and their direct reports has been both highlighted in research over the years. What's the number one reason people leave? You know, it's cliche now that oh, it's satisfaction with the you know immediate manager, which that research, as you likely know, is thirty years old, done by Gallup, but it's become part of the mental construct of how we view why people you know leave right or wrong because there's other reasons people leave of course so what i'm getting at is this is that we're in this situation correct me if i'm wrong um, both from microsoft perspective as well as what you think uh, we're doing here in the states and potentially around the world that we're we're in a new normal and i know not many people like that i don't like that term either but we're not going to be in the office, arguably five days a week, you know, 40, 50 hours a day as standard practice, probably anymore. And so, you know, how do we then adjust and reset expectations around specifically what it means to be a manager slash, you know, coach slash, you know, to be somebody who's going to inspire, um, look out for someone's well-being, as well as ensure that they get their work done. Is that part of your development process there at Microsoft is coaching and resetting expectations and enabling that group to be more yep. effective? Yeah. That's exactly why we why we came out with the model coaching care, okay? Mm -hmm. Is because before then, what what would happen is that you were an IC, you wanted to grow your career and and what people thought was in order to grow my career, I have to become a manager. And so, ta-da, tomorrow, you know, or today, you are a manager. And the person doesn't really know what they're supposed to be doing. They largely work on their IC stuff and on the side are a manager and we wanted to be very clear the role of the manager is critical. And these are our expectations. We expect you to model coaching care. And then below that, we have practices and we created a whole required learning track on um, the manager expectations. And um, it, it, it really, it, again, timing was could not have been more perfect, okay, because this happened prior to COVID. And so we were already setting the stage for this. So then when you get to the hybrid work, guidelines and you get to these, you know, the fact that we need to have conversations with our teams, create hybrid norms, okay, for your teams, because not all teams are going to want to do things 
the same the same way there could be teams that really do rely on in-person collaboration and they might decide you know what every wednesday we're all going to be in the office but they have to decide that together no one from the top is going to dictate that like that is not that is not in our hybrid work guidelines what's in our guidelines is meet with your teams and create your own norms okay um you know on 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 my team we've decided we mostly want to for inclusion purposes and and other purposes we're a global team so not everyone is located in redmond we're going to do all of our big meetings online okay yeah. we're not we're not going to have in person big meetings unless it's once a year we bring everyone back we fly people in then maybe we would do that you know if, if people are comfortable at that point to to all be together in one room but we are our team meetings our lt meetings our extended lt meetings for my team all going to be online so there's three things that i want to check off in the balance of our time um they're diversity equity and inclusion and belonging um focusing mostly on diversity and inclusion, um, ethics, mm -hmm. and just where you believe we're going uh, with the future of work. And you just touched on it in a little bit, but I, I wanna come back to a certain aspect, but I, I wanna really talk about um, that first uh, you know, pillar uh, around diversity, equity, inclusion, because many are feeling left out. They're not feeling seen, heard. They're not feeling empowered and obviously, at, based on what I'm hearing, you're doing an exceptional job at Microsoft. You've been a leading practice company in people analytics and on many other facets of, of work, you know, over the years. And, you know, kudos to you and your team for that. I just know that others aren't there. And diversity has uh, arguably been compromised uh, for a variety of reasons. The resources at home aren't equitable. Um, there's not... Uh, you know, the ability to hire and retain uh, diverse uh, people has been compromised in many job families. Obviously, there's been a huge exodus of women um, in the workplace. So what role does people analytics have, not only there at Microsoft, but in general, in helping address diversity, equity, and inclusion topics as we have this new hybrid workforce strategy that's emerging per organization? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the biggest opportunities that people analytics teams have. And what I would do is encourage your listeners to go out and look at our diversity external release. Um, we it is it is a very uh, big file that we release every year. Every year gets a little bigger. Okay. And, and in there, you can see all the different things that we are doing from a diversity and inclusion standpoint. It talks, it not only discloses, uh, you know, pages of data, okay, and in terms of how we're doing with representation, but it also talks about our inclusion index and how we measure inclusion. It talks about the different programs that we have, because again, representation is just one part of it. Okay, we, the, the bigger, more important part is making sure that people feel included. And when they feel included, they're gonna stay, okay? Um, one of the, I would say, secret projects that we did for a while until we were ready to share was employee voice, okay? And, and truly 
focusing on and understanding the impact that employee voice had um, on the organization. So feeling safe to speak up, okay, feeling like that you're, you're able to share your voice with others. Um, employee listening is such a huge aspect of the analytics that we do that we need to ensure that employees feel like they can share their thoughts and that, that managers are listening and taking action. And so um, that's definitely definitely an area of focus that we've done. We've, we've used uh, a couple different uh, engineering teams as kind of test cases for the work that we've done there, but we've now just uh, uh, expanded it to, we have now employee and employee voice question in our daily pulse survey so that we can get um, you know, a continuous read on whether or not people feel safe to speak up, which is awesome. And, and with that, we have an open-ended question. When people say that they don't feel safe to speak up, tell us why, okay? So that we can, we can figure out what we can do about that. Um, so, I, you know, I think, you, again, companies need to understand and, and really introspectively figure out what's critical for them, which is what we did, and then focus on that. Um, and what's wonderful now is the fact that we have so many companies uh, sharing, you know, their, their thoughts in these external releases every year. Right. Uh, thanks for that. And just to call out a couple of things, you, you mentioned daily survey of daily pulse, and you also uh, mentioned uh, added a question. So what I want to call out and get your take on is Diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I have contended, requires new data, new questions, uh, because we've just had this kind of basic checkbox approach historically. You know, okay, we've hired X number of African-American women, we've done it, it, and it hasn't told a story, nor has it delivered you know, value. So going back to the need for creativity, can you share a little bit about the, Number one, have you created new metrics around diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, whether it be survey questions or you know metrics in your exec deck? Can you just speak to that a bit? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely the inclusion index is all ours. I mean, we we did a whole bunch of research with our global diversity and inclusion team on the right questions to ask. Um, we've continued to evolve kind of how we... Um, how we understand inclusion. And when I say new questions, like we, we most uh, um, up until this year, we used our annual engagement survey to measure um, our inclusion index, which we still do, but we wanted to get more of a continuous read on some of these inclusion aspects. So we, we brought a couple questions into our daily pulse survey. Our, our daily pulse survey largely looks at culture, leadership, and strategy. It's very high level type, um, you know, look at how we're doing. And so we always had a question on the cultural aspect of diversity and inclusion, but this gets to a little bit more about the behaviors and the experience, okay? And so that's, that is the, the evolution that we, we kind of got to this year. But the thing about you, you, again, I want to emphasize the creativity and I also want to emphasize the fact that as a researcher and being creative, the more data, the better. We talked about that earlier. It's just like, yeah. before we got on, we talked about it yeah. with our kids. It's like more data, the better. That being said, there are boundaries around ethics and there has to be times where we say no. So 
can you just share a little bit around your governance model and the wickets that you put project or data or metrics through to say, okay, this is bumping up against the boundary. We're not going to do that. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, we have a lot of different governance processes, um, but I would say specifically in the people analytics space, um, we're, we're actually, we've just started to evolve our governance in the people analytics space because largely when we were, when we focused on governance, we were focused on governance outside of our organization. So like when other folks in Microsoft would come to us and say, Hey, we want this data set. Can you, you know, hand it over? We had a whole governance process. Okay. Uh, about you know whether or not that who we worked with to get approvals, whether or not that happened, all that kind of stuff. But I would say the evolution of that has been within our own team and the governance process, even within our own team and and the ethics charter that we have around you know hey just because we can should we okay because again my team largely does have access to all the data but there are certain data elements that we are very specific about which team has access to so we we've been creating a governance process um and in more of an internal governance process for our own people analytics team to understand and the steps that we would go through okay and the owners and assigning um we have data owners and data stewards and these data owners would be um, COE leaders. So like I would be the data owner of our employee listening. Our, our um, CVP of recruiting would be the data owner for the recruiting data. Okay. Our, so signing those and then the data stewards, which are largely folks on my team, and then figuring out the, the processes in which to provide data and then take away the access for data once the, um, the project is up. And so, yeah, we, we take this very, very, very seriously. <laughs> Um, and and it's not just a statement around like providing data to others outside of our organization. It's even within our organization. I I adore you so much. <laughs> I, I I mean I want to just highlight the language that you're using and how appropriate it is. You know, data owners, data stewards, uh, and everything that you're sharing. It requires work. It requires effort. It doesn't happen by magic. It's not that you download a template off the internet and there you, right. you have a governance model. So I just want to highlight that, you know, for listeners. And there's, you know, so much more that we can talk about on that. But in the balance of our time, I want to toggle a little bit. And of course, you want to add anything by all means, you know, do so. I want, you know, we've been speaking you know, about your journey and in math and being an actuary and, you know, your evolution there at, at Microsoft and, you know, how you've served customers at the executive level and, and you've scaled it to managers and others. Um, I wanted just as we start to wrap, uh, talk about workers in general, because they're generating this data. And to your earlier point, you know, being open with them and transparent, assuming that they're going to take the time to read something on this, which many aren't, um, is that we have a responsibility to look out for them. And there arguably should be a value proposition in it for them. You know, if I'm working, yeah, you know, Microsoft in this case owns all these technologies and, you know, but the data is about me. And so can you just share as we go over time, both not only in Microsoft, but just in general in the world, do we as workers have 
uh, responsibility to better educate ourselves on the data that we're generating and how it's being used and maybe taking more conscious ownership of our digital profile? Absolutely. And you, and you see that even in, you know, in your cell phone use. Okay. Um, you have, you have choices, you have um, options and you have different buttons you can press to say, no, keep that. I don't want to share this with people. And that's going to happen more and more, I imagine. And that's really the future is this notion that employees need to be able to have access to their own data so that they are empowered to make the right changes that they want to make, okay? And, and that's kind of the premise of Aviva. It's an employee experience platform. It's to help employees understand and be more effective, be more engaged at work, okay? And, and that's what I love so much about the Viva platform and their vision to what they're trying to do. It's to, it's to really empower the employee more. I mean, I, I love the little nudges that we've put in Outlook. You, you said that you've, you know, you've used my, my guidance about not sending mails on a Friday night, but you know, if you're using Outlook, it, it will remind you not to do it when you're, when you're getting ready to send the email. Okay. And that's what we need more of because humans can't remember every little thing all the time, um, even if they want to. Okay. And so how can we use technology that, you know, how can we get employees to say, this is what's important to me and then remind me about this. Okay. Yeah. That, that's, I really feel like that is, um, it, it, first of all, it's already here now, but it's going to continue to be the future of the, you know, the, these kind of preferences, um, I wouldn't even call them customizations, personalization, okay, personalization in the way you work and how you work best and how you can, technology can enable and empower you to, to get to that outcome. Absolutely love it. Don, you're a treasure. I appreciate you sharing so, so much. Um, it's an honor to talk with you. And, you know, again, I, I, on behalf of the community uh, that I serve, you know, thank you for being who you are and, and doing what you do. Uh, any closing comments as we start to wrap? Well, I would say that I appreciate you as well, because you have done so much incredible work to really build out this, um, this profession, okay, and, and your focus on employee data for good and ethics and trust is something that I truly, truly value. It inspires me to do better work. So I want to I wanna turn that right back to you and really thank you for everything that you do. No, you're, you're, thank you, Don. That means a lot. And uh, you, you be well and hope to see you in person before too long. And uh, yeah, you keep, keep being your awesome self. So thanks again. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for joining the People Data for Good podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the People Data for Good movement, please visit us at pafau.net.